book the sixth part four of birds of prey by mary elizabeth braddon this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter six part one found in the bible november third the most wonderful event has befallen surely the most wonderful that ever came to pass outside the realms of fiction let me set down the circumstances of yesterday coolly and quietly if i can i invoke the placid spirit of my children i invoke all the divinities of gray's inn and the fields let me be legal and specific perspicacious and logical if this beating heart this fevered brain will allow me a few hours respite the autumn sunshine blessed the land again yesterday moorland and meadow fallow and clover field were all the brighter for the steady downfall of the previous day i walked to newhall directly after breakfast and found my dearest standing at the white five-barred gate dressed in her pretty blue jacket and with ribbons in her bonny brown hair she was pleased to see me though at first just a little inclined to play the boudets on account of my absence on the previous day of course i assured her that it had been anguish for me to remain away from her and quoted that divine sonnet of our williams to the like effect how like winter hath my absent been and again oh never say that i was false of heart though absent seemed my flame to qualify equally of course my pet pretended not to believe me after this little misunderstanding we forgave each other and adored each other again with just a little more than usual devotion and then we went for a long ramble among the fields and looked at the dear placid sheep who stared at us wonderingly in return as if exclaiming to themselves and these are the specimen couple of the creatures called lovers we met uncle joe in the course of our wanderings and returned with him in time for the vulgar superstition of dinner which we might have forgotten had we been left by ourselves after dinner uncle joe made off to his piggeries while aunt dorothy fell asleep in a capacious old armchair by the fire after making an apologetic remark to the effect that she was tired and had been a good deal tood that morning in the dairy tood i understand is yorkshire for worried aunt dorothy having departed into the shadowy realms of dreams charlotte and i were left to our own devices there was a backgammon board on a side table surmounted by an old indian bowl of dried rose leaves and pour nos distrait i proposed that i should teach my dearest that diverting game she assented and we set to work in a very business-like manner miss halliday all attention i serious as a professional schoolmaster unfortunately for my pupil's progress the game of backgammon proved less entertaining than her own conversation so after a very feeble attempt on the one side to learn and on the other side to teach we closed the board and began to talk first of the past then of the future the happy future which we were to share there is no need that i should set down this lover's talk is it not written on my heart the future seemed so fair and unclouded to me as my love and i sat talking yesterday afternoon now all is changed the strangest the most surprising complications have arisen and i doubt i fear after we had talked for a long time miss halliday suddenly proposed that i should read to her 
diana once told me that you read very beautifully said this flatterer and i should so like to hear you read poetry of course you will find plenty of poems in that old bookcase cowper and bloomfield and pope now i'm sure that pope is just the kind of poet whose verses you would read magnificently shall we explore the bookcase together now if there was any manner of beguiling an idle afternoon which seems to me most delightful it is by the exploration of old bookcases and when that delight can be shared by the woman one fondly loves the pleasure thereof must be of course multiplied to an indefinite amount so charlotte and i set to work immediately to ransack the lower shelves of the old-fashioned mahogany bookcase which contained the entire library of the mercer household i am bound to admit that we did not light upon many volumes of thrilling interest the verses of cowper like those of southey have always appeared to me to have only one fault there are too many of them one shrinks appalled from that thick closely printed volume of morality cut into lengths of ten feet and beyond the few well-worn quotations in daily use i am fain to confess that i am almost a stranger to the bard of olney half a dozen odd volumes of the gentleman's magazine three or four of the annual register a neatly bound edition of clarissa harlowe and sir charles grandison in twelve volumes law's holy call to a serious life paradise lost joseph andrews hervey's meditations and gulliver's travels formed the varied contents of the principal shelves above there were shabbily bound volumes and unbound pamphlets below there were folios the tops whereof were thickly covered with the dust of ages having escaped the care of the handmaidens even in that neatly appointed household i knelt down to examine these you'll be covered with dust if you touch them cried charlotte i was once curious enough to examine them but the result was very disappointing and yet they look so delightfully mysterious i said this one for instance that is an old history of london with curious plates and maps rather interesting if one has nothing more amusing to read but the perennial supply of novels from moody's spoils one for that kind of book if i ever come to newhall again i shall dip into the old history one is never tired of dead and gone london but after mr knight's delightful book any old history may seem very poor what is my burly friend here oh a dreadful veterinary surgeon's encyclopedia the farmer's friend i think it's called it's about the ailments of animals and the next the next is an odd volume of penny magazine dear aunt dorothy is rich in odd volumes and the next my bulky friend number two with cracked leather back and a general tendency to decay oh that is the minel bible the minel bible a hot perspiration broke out upon my face as i knelt at charlotte holliday's feet with my hand resting lightly on top of the book the minel bible i repeated and my voice was faintly tremulous in spite of the effort i made to control myself what do you mean by the minel bible i mean the old family bible that belonged to my great-grandmamma it was her father's bible you know and of course he was my great-grandfather christian minel why do you stare at me valentine is there anything so wonderful in my having had a great-grandfather no darling but the fact is that i 
in another moment i should have told her the entire truth but i remembered just in time that i had pledged myself to profound secrecy with regard to the nature and progress of my investigation and i had yet to learn whether that pledge did or did not involve the observance of secrecy even with those most interested in my researches pending further communication with sheldon i was certainly bound to be silent i have a kind of interest in the name of meynell i said for i was once engaged in a business matter with people of that name and thus having hoodwinked my beloved with a bouncer i proceeded to extract the bible from its shelf the book was so tightly wedged into place that to remove it was like drawing a tooth it was a noble-looking old volume blue with mould of ages and redolent of a chill of dampness like the atmosphere of a tomb i should so like to examine the old book when the candles come in i said fortunately for the maintenance of my secret the darkness was closing in upon us when i discovered the volume and the room was only fitfully illuminated by the flame that brightened and faded every minute i carried the book to a side table and charlotte and i resumed our talk until the candles came and close behind them uncle joe i fear i must have seemed a very inattentive lover during that brief interval for i could not concentrate my thoughts upon the subject of our discourse my mind would wander to the strange discovery that i had just made and i could not refrain from asking myself whether by any extraordinary chance my own dear love should be the rightful claimant to john haygarth's hoarded wealth i hoped that it might not be so i hoped that my darling might be penniless rather than the heir to wealth which in all likelihood would create an obstacle strong enough to sever us eternally i longed to question her about her family but could not as yet trust myself to broach the subject and while i doubted and hesitated honest blustering uncle joe burst into the room and aunt dorothy awoke and was unutterably surprised to find she had slept so long after this came tea and as i sat opposite my dearest girl i could not choose but remember that gray-eyed molly whose miniature had been found in the tulip wood bureau and whose bright face i had seen in the likeness of philip sheldon's beautiful stepdaughter and mr sheldon's lovely stepdaughter was the lineal descendant of this very molly strange mystery of transmitted resemblances here was the sweet face that had bewitched honest simple-minded matthew haygarth reproduced after the lapse of a century my charlotte was descended from a poor little player girl who had smiled on the roisterous populace of bartholomew fair some few drops of bohemian blood mingled with the pure life-stream in her veins it pleased me to think of this but i derived no pleasure from the idea that charlotte might possibly be the claimant of a great fortune she may have cousins who would stand before her i said to myself and there was some comfort in the thought after tea i asked permission to inspect the old family bible much to the astonishment of uncle joe who had no sympathy with the antiquarian tastes and marvelled that i should take any interest in so mouldy a volume i told him with perfect truth that such things had always more or less interest for me and then i withdrew to my little table where i was provided with a special pair of candles you will find the births and deaths of all poor molly's ancestors on the first leaf said uncle joe old christian meynell was a rare one for jotting down such things 
but the ink has gone so pale that it's about as much you'll do to make sense of it i'll lay charlotte looked over my shoulder as i examined the fly-leaf of the family bible even with this incentive to distraction i contrived to be tolerably businesslike and this is the record which i found on the faded page samuel matthew Manel, son of christian and sarah Manel, born march nine seventeen ninety six baptized as st giles cripplegate in this city susan Minel, daughter of christian and sarah Minel, born june twenty nine seventeen ninety eight also baptized in the same church charlotte Minel, second daughter to the above christian and sarah born october three eighteen hundred baptized at the above-mentioned church of st giles london below these entries in blacker ink and in a different handwriting a bold business-like masculine calligraphy came the following charlotte Minel married to james halliday in the parish church of barngrave york's april fifteenth eighteen nineteen thomas halliday son of above james and charlotte halliday born january three eighteen twenty one baptized in the parish church of barngrave february twenty in the same year mary halliday daughter of the above-named james and charlotte halliday born may twenty seventh eighteen twenty three baptized at barngrave july first in the same year below this there was an entry in a woman's penmanship susan the beloved sister of c h died in london july eleventh eighteen thirty five judge not that ye not be judged i came to call sinners and not the righteous to repentance this record seemed to hint vaguely at some sad story susan the beloved sister no precise data of the death no surname and then those two depreciating sentences which seemed to plead for the dead i had been led to understand that christian Manel's daughters both died in yorkshire one married the other unmarried the last record in the book was the decease of james halliday my dear girl's grandfather after pondering long over the strangely worded entry of susan Minel's death i reflected that with the aid of those mysterious powers hook and crook i must contrive to possess myself of an exact copy of this leaf from a family history if not of the original document again my duty to my sheldon impelled me to be false to all my new-born instincts and boldly give utterance to another bouncer i am very much interested in a county history now preparing for the press i said to my honoured uncle who was engaged in a hand at cribbage with his wife and i really think this old leaf from a family bible would make a very interesting page in that work i blushed for myself as i felt how shamefully i was imposing upon my newly found kinsman's credulity with scarcely any one but uncle joe could i have dared to employ so shallow an artifice would it really now said that confiding innocent well i suppose old papers and letters and such like are uncommonly interesting to some folks i can't say i care much about em myself would you have any objection to my taking a copy of these entries i asked my word no lad not i take a half a dozen copies and welcome if they can be of any use to you or other people that's not much to ask for i thanked my simple host and determined to write to a stationer at hull 
for some tracing paper by the first post next morning there was some happiness at least in having found this unlooked-for end to my researches i had a good excuse for remaining longer near charlotte halliday it's only for my poor mary's sake that i set any value on that old volume the farmer said presently in a meditative tone you see the names there are the names of her relations not mine and this place and all in it was hers dorothy and i are only interlopers as you may say at best though i brought my fortune to the old farm and dorothy brought her fortune and between us we've made newhall a much better place than it was in old james halliday's time but there's something sad in the thought that none of those that were born on the land have left chick or child to inherit it uncle joseph fell for a while into a pensive reverie and i thought of that other inheritance well-nigh fifty times the value of newhall farm which is now waiting for a claimant and again i asked myself could it be possible that this sweet girl whose changeful face had saddened with those old memories whose innocent heart knew not one sordid desire could it be indeed she whose fair hand was to wrest the haygarthian gold from the grip of crown lawyers the sight of that old bible seemed to have revived mr mercer's memory of his first wife with unwonted freshness she was a sweet young creature he said the living picture of our lottie and sometimes i fancy it must have been that which made me take to lottie when she was a little one i used to see my first wife's eyes looking up at me out of lottie's eyes i told tom it was a comfort to me to have the little lass with me and that's how they let her come over so often from highly poor old tom used to bring her over in his whitechapel cart and leave her behind him for a week or so at a stretch and then when my dorothy yonder took pity upon a poor lonely widower she made as much of the little girl as if she'd been her own and more perhaps for not having any children of her own she thought them such out-of-the-way creatures that you couldn't coddle them and pet them too much there's a little baby lies buried in barngrave churchyard with tom holliday's sister that would have been a noble young man sitting where you're sitting mr hawkers and looking at me as bright as you're looking perhaps if the lord's will hadn't been otherwise we've all our troubles you see and that was mine if it hadn't been for dorothy life would not have been worth much for me after that time but my dorothy is all manner of blessings rolled up in one the farmer looked fondly at his second wife as he said this and she blushed and smiled upon him with responsive tenderness i fancy a woman's blushes and smiles wear longer in these calm solitudes than amid the tumult and clamour of a great city finding my host inclined to dwell upon the past i venture to hazard an indirect endeavour to obtain some information respecting that entry in the bible which had excited my curiosity miss susan meynell died unmarried i believe i said i see her death recorded here but she is described by her christian name only ah very like replied mr mercer with an air of indifference which i perceived to be assumed yes my poor molly's aunt susan died unmarried and in london i had been given to understand that she died in yorkshire i blushed for my own impertinence as i pressed this inquiry what right had i to be given to understand anything about these honest manels 
I saw poor Uncle Joe's disconcerted face, and I felt that the hunter of an heir at law is apt to become a very obnoxious creature. Susan Manel died in London. The poor lass died in London, replied Joseph Mercer gravely. And now we'll drop that subject, if you please, my lad. It isn't a pleasant one. After this I could no longer doubt that there was some painful story involved in these two depreciating sentences of the gospel. It was some time before Uncle Joe was quite his own jovial and rather noisy self again, and on this evening we had no whist. I bade my friends good-night a little earlier than usual, and departed, after having obtained permission to take a tracing of the fly-leaf as soon as possible. On this night the starlit sky and lonesome moor seemed to have lost their soothing power. There was a new fever in my mind. The simple plan of the future which I had mapped out for myself was suddenly shattered. The Charlotte of to-night, heiress at law to an enormous fortune, ward in chancery, claimant against the crown, was a very different person from the simple maid whom there were none or only a doting simpleton in the person of the present writer, to praise and very few to love. The night before last I had hoped so much. To-night hope had forsaken me. It seemed as if Titan's hand had dug a great pit between me and the woman I loved, a pit as deep as the grave. Philip Sheldon might have consented to give me his stepdaughter unpossessed of a sixpence but would he give me his stepdaughter with a hundred thousand pounds for her fortune? Alas, no! I know the Sheldonian intellect too well to be fooled by any hope so wild and baseless. The one bright dream of my misused life faded from me in the hour in which I discovered my dearest girl's claim to the Haygarthian inheritance. But I am not going to throw up the sponge before the fight is over time enough to die when I am laying face downward in the ensanguined mire, and feel the hosts of the foemen trampling above my shattered carcass. I will live in the light of my Charlotte's smiles while I can, and for the rest, any fall Pierre, Fontaine, Jenny Bois, Pade Tonio. There is no cup so bitter that a man can dare say, I will not drain it to the very dregs. What must be shall be, that is a certain text. And in the meantime, carpe diem. I am all bohemian again. November 5th. After a day's delay, I have obtained my tracing paper and made two tracings of the entries in the Minel Bible. How intercourse with the Sheldonian race inclines one to the duplication of documents. I consider the copying press of modern civilization the supreme incarnation of man's distrust of his fellow-men. I spent this afternoon and evening with my dear love, my last evening in Yorkshire. To-morrow I shall see my Sheldon, and inform him of the very strange termination which has come to my researches. Will he communicate at once with his brother? Will he release me from my oath of secrecy? There's nothing of the Masonic secretiveness in my organization, and I am very weary of the seal that has been set upon my unwary lips. Will Charlotte be told that she is the reverend intestate's next of kin? These are questions which I ask myself as I sit in the stillness of my room at the magpie, scribbling this wretched diary of mine, while the church clock booms three solemn strokes in the distance. 
oh why did not the reverend intestate marry his housekeeper and make a will like other honest citizens and leave my charlotte to walk the obscure byways of honest poverty with me i do believe that i could have been honest i do believe that i could have been brave and true and steadfast for her dear sake but it is the office of a man to propose while the unseen disposes perhaps such a youth as mine admits no redemption i have written circulars for horatio paget i have been the willing remorseless tool of a man who never eats his dinner without inflicting a wrong upon his fellow-creatures can a few moments of maudlin sentimentality a vague yearning for something brighter and better a brief impulse towards honesty inspired by a woman's innocent eyes can so little virtue in the present atone for so much guilt in the past alas i fear not i had one last brief tete-a-tete with my dear girl while i took the tracing from the old bible she sat watching me and distracting me more or less while i worked and despite the shadow of doubt that has fallen upon me i could not be otherwise than happy in her sweet company when i came to the record of susan Minnell's death my charlotte's manner changed all at once from her accustomed joyousness to a pensive gravity i was very sorry you spoke of susan Minnell to uncle joseph she said thoughtfully but why sorry my dear i had some vague notion as to the cause of this sorrow but the instincts of the chase impelled me to press the subject was i not bound to know every secret in the lives of matthew haygarth's descendants there is a very sad story connected with my aunt susan she was my great aunt you know said charlotte with a grave earnest face she went away from home and there was great sorrow i cannot talk of the story even to you valentine for there seems something sacred in these painful family secrets my poor aunt susan left all her friends and died many years afterwards in london she was known to have died unmarried i asked this would be an important question from george sheldon's point of sight yes charlotte replied blushing crimson that blush told me a great deal there was someone concerned in this poor lady's sorrow i said someone to blame her for all her unhappiness there was one whom she loved and trusted perhaps whom she loved and trusted only too well oh valentine must not that be terrible to confide with all your heart in the person you love and to find him base and cruel if my poor aunt had not believed montague kingdon to be true and honourable she would have trusted her friends a little instead of trusting so entirely in him oh valentine what am i telling you i cannot bear to cast a shadow on the dead my dear love do you think i cannot pity this injured lady do you think that i am likely to play the pharisee and be eager to bespatter the grave of this poor sufferer i can almost guess the story which you shrink from telling me it is one of those sad stories so often acted so often told your aunt loved a person called montague kingdon her superior in station perhaps i looked at charlotte as i said this and her face told me that i had guessed rightly this montague kingdon admired and loved her i said he seemed eager to make her his wife but no doubt imposed secrecy as to his intentions she accepted his word as that of a true-hearted lover and a gentleman and in the end had bitter reason to repent her confidence 
That is an outline of the story, is it not, Charlotte? I am sure that it was so. I am sure that when she left Newhall she went away to be married, cried Charlotte eagerly. I have seen a letter that proves it, to me at least, and yet I have heard even Mamma speak harshly of her, so long dead and gone off the face of this earth, as if she had deliberately chosen the sad fate which came to her. Is it not possible that Mr. Kingdon did marry Miss Minel after all? No, replied Charlotte very sadly. There is hope of that. I have seen a letter written by my poor aunt years afterwards, a letter which tells much of the cruel truth, and I have heard that Mr. Kingdon came back to Yorkshire and married a rich lady during my aunt's lifetime. I should like to see that letter, I said involuntarily. Why, Valentine? asked my darling, looking at me with sorrowful, wondering eyes. To me it seems so painful to talk of these things. It's like reopening an old wound. But if the interests of other people require, I began in a very blundering manner, whose interest can be served by my showing you my poor aunt's letter? It would seem like an act of dishonor to the dead. What could I say after this, bound hand and foot as I am by my promise to Sheldon? After a long talk with my sweet one, I borrowed Uncle Joe's dog-cart and spun across to Barngrave, where I found the little church, beneath whose gray old roof Charlotte Manel plighted her troth to James Halliday. I took a copy of all entries in the register concerning Miss Manel Halliday and her children, and then went back to Newhall to restore the dog-cart and to take my last Yorkshire tea at the hospitable old farmhouse. Tomorrow I'm off to Barlingford, fifteen miles from this village, to make more copies from registries concerning my sweet heiress, the registries of her father's marriage and her own birth. After that I think my case will be tolerably complete, and I can present myself to Sheldon in the guise of a conqueror. Is it not a great conquest to have made? Is it not almost an act of chivalry for these prosaic days to go forth into a world as a private inquirer, and win a hundred thousand pounds for the lady of one's love? And yet, I wish any one rather than my Charlotte were the lineal descendant of Matthew Haygarth. November 10th. Here I am in London once more, with my Sheldon in aesthetics, and our affairs progressing marvellously well, as he informs me but with that ponderous slowness peculiar to all mortal affairs in which the authorities of the realm are in any way concerned. My work is finished. Hawkehurst, the genealogist and antiquarian, sinks into Hawkehurst, the private individual. I have no more to do but to mind my own business, and wait for the fruition of time in the shape of my reward. Can I accept three thousand pounds for giving my dearest her birthright? can i take payment for a service done to her surely not and on the other hand can i continue to woo my sweet one conscious that she is the rightful claim to a great estate can i take advantage of her ignorance and may it not be said that i traded on my secret knowledge before leaving yorkshire i stole one more day from the sheldon business in order to loiter just a few hours longer in that northern arcadia called new hall farm what assurance have I that I shall ever re-enter that pleasant dwelling? What hold have I, a wanderer and vagabond, on the future which respectable people map out for themselves with such mathematical precision? 
and even the respectable people are sometimes out in their reckoning. To snatch the joys of today must always be the policy of the adventurer. So I took one more happy afternoon at Newhall. Nor was the afternoon entirely wasted, for in the course of my farewell visit I heard more of poor Susan Minnell's history from honest Uncle Joseph. He told me the story during an after-dinner walk, in which he took me the round of his pigsties and cattle-sheds for the last time, as if he would fain have had them leave their impress on my heart. "'You may see plenty of cattle in Yorkshire,' he remarked complacently, "'but you won't see many beasts to beat that.' He pointed to a brown and mountainous mass of inert matter, which gave me to understand was something in the way of cattle. "'Would you like to see him standing?' he asked giving the mass a prod with the handle of his walking-stick, which to my cockney mind seemed rather cruel, but which, taken from an agricultural point of view, was no doubt the correct thing. He can stand. Come up, Brownie. I humbly entreated that the ill-used mass might be allowed to sprawl in undisturbed misery. Thorley, exclaimed Mr. Mercer, laying his finger significantly against the side of his unpretending nose. I had not the faintest comprehension of my revered uncle-in-law's meaning, but I said, oh, indeed, with the accents of admiration. Thorley's condiment, said my uncle. You'll see some fine animate at the cattle show, but if you see a two-year-old ox to beat him, my name is not Joe Mercer. After this I had to pay my respects to numerous specimens of the bovine race, all more or less prostrate under the burden of superabundant flesh, all seeming to cry aloud for the retreatment of some banting of the agricultural world. After we had done the cattle-sheds, with heroic resignation on my part, and with enthusiasm on the part of Mr. Mercer, we went a long way to see some rarities in the way of mutton, which commodity was to be found cropping the short grass on a distant upland. With very little appreciation of the zoological varieties, and with the consciousness that my dear one was sitting in the farmhouse parlor, wondering at my prolonged absence, this excursion could not be otherwise than a bore to me. But it was a small thing to sacrifice my own pleasure for once, in a way, when by doing so I might gratify the kindest of men and of uncles, so I plodded briskly across the fields with the friendly farmer. I had my reward, for in the course of this walk Mr. Mercer gave me the history of poor Susan Minnell. "'I didn't care to talk about the story the other night before the young lass,' he said gravely, "'for her heart's so full of pity and tenderness, pretty dear, that any tale such as that is like to upset her, but the story's known to almost all the folks in these parts, so there's no particular reason against my telling it to you.' I've heard my poor mother talk of Susan Minnell many a time. She was a regular beauty, it seems, prettier than her sister Charlotte, and she was a pretty woman, as you may guess by looking at our Charlotte, who is thought the image of her grandmother. But Susan was one of those beauties that you don't see very often, more like a picture than flesh and blood. The gentry used to turn round to look at her at Barngrave Church, I've heard my mother say, she was a rare one for dress, too. She had a few hundreds left by her father and mother, who both of them had been very well-to-do people. 
the mother was daughter to william rand of barngrave a man who farmed above a thousand acres of his own land and the father kept a carpet warehouse in aldersgate street this information i received with respectful deference and a hypocritical assumption of ignorance respecting miss Monell's antecedents mr mercer paused to take a breath and then continued the story after his own rambling fashion well my lad what with her fine dress and what with her pretty looks susan Minel seems to have thought a little too much of herself so that when montague kingdon of kingdon place younger brother to lord durnsville fell in love with her and courted her not exactly openly but with the knowledge of her sister mrs halliday she thought it no more than natural that he should tend to make her his wife mr kingdon was ten years older than susan and had served in spain and had not borne too good a character abroad he had been in a hard-drinking cavalry regiment and had spent all his money and sold out directly the war was over there was very little of all this known down hereabouts where mr kingdon stood very high on account of his being lord durnsville's brother but it was known that he was poor and that the durnsville estates were heavily encumbered into the bargain then this gentleman would have been no grand match for miss meynell if if he had married her no my lad it might have been the knowledge of his poverty that made susan and her sister think less of the difference between his station and the girls the two women favored him anyhow and they kept the secret from james halliday who was a regular upstraight and downright kind of fellow as proud as any lord in his own way the secret was kept safe enough for some time and mr kingdon was always dropping in at newhall when jim was out of the way but folks in these parts are very inquisitive and lonesome as our place is there are plenty of people go by between monday and saturday so by and by it got to be noticed that there was very often a gentleman's horse standing at newhall gate with a bridle tied to one of the gate posts and those that knew anything knew that that horse belonged to montague kingdon a friend of jim halliday's told him as much one day and warned him that mr kingdon was a scamp and was said to have a spanish wife somewhere beyond seas this was quite enough for james halliday who flew into a roaring rage at the notion of any man most of all lord durnsville's brother going to his house and courting his sister-in-law in secret it was at barngrave he was told this one market-day as he was lounging with his friends in the old yard of the black bull inn where the corn exchange used to be held in those days he called for his horse the next minute and left the town at a gallop when he came to newhall he found montague kingdon's chestnut mare tied to the gate-post and he found mr kingdon himself dawdling about the garden with miss meynell and then i suppose there was a scene i suggested with unfeigned interest in this domestic story well i believe there was my lad i've heard all about it from my poor molly who had the story from her mother james halliday didn't mince matters he gave mr kingdon a bit of his mind in his own rough outspoken way and told him it would be worse for him if he ever crossed the threshold of newgate again if you meant well by that foolish girl you wouldn't come sneaking here behind my back he said but you don't mean well by her and you've a spanish wife hidden away somewhere in the peninsula 
Mr. Kingdon gave lie to this, but he said he shouldn't stoop to justify himself to an unmannerly yeoman. If you're a gentleman, he said, you should pay dearly for your insolence. I'm ready to pay you any price you like, answered James Halliday, as bold as brass. But as you weren't over-fond of fighting abroad, where there was plenty to be got for it, I don't suppose you want to fight at home, where there's nothing to be got for it. And did Susan Minel hear of this? I asked. I could fancy this ill-fated girl standing by and looking on aghast while hard things were said to the man she loved, while the silver veil of sweet romance was plucked so roughly from the countenance of her idol by an angry rustic's rude hand. Well, I don't quite know whether she heard it all, answered Mr. Mercer thoughtfully. Of course, James Halliday told his wife all about the row afterwards. He was very kind to his sister-in-law, in spite of her having deceived him, and he talked to her very seriously, telling her all he had heard in Barngrave against Montague Kingdon. She listened to him quietly enough, but it was quite clear that she didn't believe a word he said. "'I know you have heard all of that, James,' she said, "'but the people who said it knew they were not telling the truth.' Lord Dernsville and his brother are not popular in the country, and there are no falsehoods too cruel for the malice of his enemies. She answered him with some such fine speech as that, and when the next morning came, she was gone. She eloped with Mr. Kingdon? Yes, she left a letter for her sister, full of romantic stuff about loving him all the better, because people spoke ill of him. Regular women's talk, you know. Bless their poor silly hearts murmured mr mercer with a tender compassion she was going to london to be married to mr kingdon she wrote they were to be married at the old church in the city where she had been christened and she was going to stay with an old friend a young woman who had once been her brother's sweetheart and who was married to a butcher in newgate market till the bans were given out or the license bought the butcher's wife had a county house out at edmonton and it was there susan was going to stay all that seemed straightforward enough, I said. Yes, replied Uncle Joe. But if Mr. Kingdon had meant fairly by Susan Manel, it would have been as easy for him to marry her at Barngrave as in London. He was as poor as a church mouse, but he was his own master, and there was no one to prevent him doing just what he pleased. This is about what James Holliday thought, I suppose, for he tore off to London, as fast as post-horses could carry him, in pursuit of his wife's sister and Mr. Kingdon. But though he made inquiries along the road, he could not hear that they had passed before him, and for the best of all reasons. He went to the butcher's house at Edmonton, but there he found no trace of Susan Manel, except a letter posted in Yorkshire, on the day of the row between James and Mr. Kingdon, telling her intention of visiting her old friend within the next few days, and hinting at an approaching marriage. There was a letter announcing the visit, but the visitor had not come. But the existence of that letter bears witness that Miss Meynell believed in the honesty of her lover's intentions. To be sure it does, poor lass, answered Mr. Mercer pensively. She believed in the word of a scoundrel, and she was made to pay dearly for her simplicity. James Halliday did all he could to find her. He searched London through, as far as any man can search such a place as London. But it was no use, and for a very good reason, as I said before. 
the end of it was he was obliged to go back to newhall no wiser than when he started and was nothing further ever discovered i asked eagerly for i felt that this was just one of those family complications from which all manner of legal difficulties might arise don't be in a hurry my lad answered uncle joe wickedness is sure to come to light sooner or later three years after this poor young woman ran away there was a drunken groom dismissed from lord durnsville's stable and what must he needs do but come straight off to james holliday to vent his spite against his master and perhaps to curry favour at newhall you shouldn't have gone to london to look for the young lady mr holliday he said you should have gone the other way i know a man as drove mr kingdon and your wife's sister across country to hull with two of my lord's own horses stopping to bait on the way they went aboard ship at hull mr kingdon and the young lady a ship that was bound for foreign parts this is what the groom said but it was little good knowing it now there had been advertisements in the papers beseeching her to come back and everything had been done that could be done and all to no end a few years after this back comes mr kingdon as large as life married to some dark-faced frizzy-haired lady whose father owned half the indies according to people's talk but he fought very shy of james halliday but they did meet one day at the covert side jim rode up to the honourable gentleman and asked him what he had done with susan manel those that saw the meeting say that montague kingdon turned as white as a ghost when he saw jim halliday riding up to him on his big raw-boned horse but nothing came of the quarrel mr kingdon did not live many years to enjoy the money his frizzy-haired west indian lady brought him he died before his brother lord durnsville and left neither chick nor child to inherit his money nor yet the durnsville title which was extinct on the death of the viscount and what of the poor girl ay poor lass what of her it was fourteen years after she left her home before her sister got so much as a line to say that she was in the land of the living when a letter did come at last it was a very melancholy one the poor creature wrote to her sister to say she was in london alone and penniless and as she thought dying and the sister went to her i remembered that depreciating sentence in the family bible written in a woman's hand that she did good honest soul as fast as she could travel carrying a full purse along with her she found poor susan at an inn near aldersgate street the old quarter you see that she'd known in her young days mrs halliday meant to have brought the poor soul back to yorkshire and had settled it all with jim but it was too late for anything of that kind she found susan dying wandering in her mind off and on but just able to recognize her sister and to ask forgiveness for having trusted to montague kingdon instead of taking counsel from those that wished her well was that all i asked presently mr mercer made long pauses in the course of his narrative during which we walked briskly on he pondering those past events i languishing for further information well lad that was about all where susan had been in all those years or what she had been doing was no more than mrs halliday could find out of late she had been living somewhere abroad the clothes she had last worn were of foreign make very poor and threadbare and there was one little box in her room at the inn 
that had been made at Rouen, for the name of Rouen Trunkmaker was on the inside of the lid. There were no letters or papers of any kind in the box, so you see there was no way of finding out what the poor creature's life had been. All her sister could do was stay with her and comfort her to the last, and to see that she was quietly laid to rest in a decent grave. She was buried in a quiet little city churchyard, somewhere where there are green trees among the smoke and the chimney-pots. Montague Kingdon had been dead some years when that happened. Is that last letter still in existence? I asked. End of Book the Sixth, Part Four